the part that's hard to teach. Like we all understand how to be outside. We all know how to camp. We all know how to make a campfire. We all know certain things. But I think the one thing I've taken from the Kalispell tribe in 30 years is um, a reverence and, and a deep connection to the land and what it provides. And as, as a European descendant, who had a dad who liked to be outdoors um i understood that and when i came here i knew i was in the right place welcome to the forest overstory i'm your host sean alexander the forest overstory is a podcast that provides insight and education into the field of forest management helping landowners to become better stewards of their forest the Forest Overstory was brought to you by the Society of American Foresters in the Inland Empire chapter. Welcome to the sixth episode. Man, I can't believe we're already on number six episode of the Forest Overstory podcast. Today, we are joined by two foresters and natural resource professionals in Ponderé County. Uh, they work for the Kalispell Tribe of Indians. We're joined by Ray Entz and Mike Lithgow. Uh, I will let you guys introduce yourselves. Sure, I'll go first. Uh, this is Ray. Uh, I'm the director of wildlife and terrestrial resources for the tribe. So I manage wildlife, forestry, fire, and uh, archaeology for the tribe. Yeah, and I'm Mike Lithgow, the information outreach coordinator and policy analyst for KNRD. And I work with all of our departments trying to you know, help tell the Kalispell tribe story to the community, to the region, and... Um, yeah, thanks for having us on today. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, I, you know, as I was saying earlier with this conversation, there's kind of a lot of different ways we can take this. And and one of the ways I want to get into in a little bit is going to be this conversation around traditional ecological knowledge. But before I get into that, um, Mike, you just said something interesting. You said your goal is to tell the story of the Kalispell tribe. Do you want to give us, you know, the the synopsis? What do you mean by that story? What is that story that you want to tell? Yeah, so I mean, at KNRD we do so many different things. Um, it's um, we really, um, you know, fight above our weight. We um, we we have a big impact on the landscape, and um, we have a lot of projects going on. So our project managers and our and our field level staff are incredibly busy doing good things for conservation, and they don't always have time to to tell that story. And I think that. Um, it's important, um, you know, for to, for people to know exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it, um, so that we can build build support in the community. And um, oftentimes, you know, you get so focused on the deliverables and the deadlines and the reporting, and um, you just don't have time to um, to go to that meeting just to to be there to be part of the process. And um, it's a it's an important role that often gets overlooked, and so. Back in 2016 it's, is when I came on board. Um, it was a longtime goal of Ray and and Dean and Joe. They're the the head, the leaders of KNRD. They wanted to bring someone in like me um, that had good relationships in the community and could help um, help tell that story. So that's kind of that's pretty much it. That's what that's what I do. I mean, I do a lot of other things too, other duties as assigned, like we all do. But um, <laughs> that's that's a main role that I play. 
um, just so like the listeners can get a sense of the scope of management, you know, what what is the the acreage, the size of uh, the, the or the amount of land that uh, you guys help manage? And what are the generally speaking, the objectives of management for for the tribe? Well, that's that's a good question. I mean, uh, scope. Uh, <laughs> the tribe is situated on a very, very small reservation, 4,700 acres. Um, their Aboriginal territory or um, adjudicated land base is upwards of 2.3 million acres. Uh, and they were distributed across um, the entire Ponderay Clark Fork watershed to about Knox and Montana and all the way up into parts of British Columbia and in the Ponderay drainage. So it's, it's interesting. So, you know, you, you have a group of people that, you know, subsisted on a pretty big landscape in much higher numbers than they are today, but then settlement change, they hunkered down and stayed in their traditional main winter village. And they were given opportunities and offers to move to larger reservations uh, during the reservation period. Um, both the Colville, uh, Spokane, and and Flathead reservations, and they said, "No, this is our home, and we're staying here." And so they they kind of hunkered down and, and and stayed out some pretty significant periods of time post treaty period. And post-reservation period, and in 1914, they were recognized by President Wilson by executive order and given a small eight-square-mile area that was only occupied by them at the time as their reservation. Uh, currently, the landscape that we own and manage is uh, a little over 11,500 acres, so since my start with the tribe in the early 90s, we've been able to acquire um, a land base beyond the reservation for the purposes of conservation and a few more parcels over time for both economics and housing. So it's, it's a mixed bag. And when you say, what's the scope of our management or what is our goal? Um, because our reservation is so small, it's hard to be a Kalispell on that minuscule acreage. There's not enough acreage to sustain their interaction and uses on the landscape. So our perspective from a tribe is, from this tribe, is extrinsic more than intrinsic. So we don't really manage within the borders of the reservation as much as we do outside. And by that, I mean, engage with um, the the federal, state, local uh, entities and agencies to uh, to you know reach what our conservation objectives and outcomes are. So, if to use one of our favorite vernaculars, a rising tide lifts all boats. So we work outside of the reservation to increase the conservation outcome in order to have benefits back to the reservation. So the so reservation's small, 
it is a special place because it 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 basically has those special rights associated with it that the tribe tribal members can use uh, differently than they can off the reservation. So that's not to say that our tribal membership doesn't hunt fish gather off the reservation. They do that like any other citizen uh, and under the jurisdiction of us, you know, the state, but um, where they can do that more in tune with their um, internal jurisdiction and understanding is that one special place, which is the reservation and all of the reserved rights that come with it. So I'm not sure that answered the entirety of your question because it's complicated. Um, yeah. Take the Colville tribe, for for instance. The Confederate Colvilles um, made up of 13 bands and occupy a reservation of 1.3 million acres. They don't have as much interest off the reservation as we do because they have enough land within the reservation to kind of have the meaningful um, outcomes they need to have from a conservation and management perspective to support their membership. And we don't. So in terms of the, uh, the goals that you guys are managing for, you said conservation, right, is, is one of those goals, but that's, that's pretty high level. Can you provide maybe some more specific goals that you guys are managing for both in terms of land, in terms of conservation, you know, uh, spiritual, cultural. Yeah. Conservation. Right. So whether that's, um, you know, the, the berry crops of the year or the, you know, the deer availability, um, you know, all of those things that supply individual Kalispell members and collectively the tribe with, um, the resources they, want or need. Um, and those, those aren't just necessarily fish and wildlife things. So, um, when we talk about forestry, forest management, and kind of that bigger landscape approach, it's really comes down to access and opportunity. So with a limited land base to be Kalispell, quote unquote, we, we, we basically, the membership um, extends uh, their access and opportunities uh, beyond that boundary uh, to fill those needs. And so that could be spiritual, religious, um, food, medicine, structural components, um, tree species to revive a uh, canoe culture that's coming back now. So it, it you know, it, it's wide ranging and it's hard to pin down. I mean, think when you think about Native American uses of the landscape, it's not really dissimilar um, from anyone else or, you know, any, any landowner because they really used it and use it the same way that we do today. Um, maybe from a different context, maybe from a different perspective, but much, much the same recreation, right? It's, it's where they work and it's where they play and it's where they pray. Yeah. I'd like to add a little bit to that as well. Um, is that the Kalispell people are very, very generous and, um, 
the the opportunity to share conservation information and um, and opportunities with non Kalispell people is important to them as well. Um, and we can talk about um, this later as about the Indian Creek Community Forest and just the opportunity to have a public place where we can um, teach Kalispell and non Kalispell um, you know principles of conservation. Um, and why these species are important to us and why these landscapes are important to us. Um, and that's, uh, it's an interesting place because the, the reservation is so small and there, we have properties off the reservation, which is the Indian Creek Community Forest is one of those properties. Um, and the river divides the reservation, the Ponderay River divides the reservation in two. And the, um, the school system that the, all the children go to is integrated. And so there's a sense of community that's really powerful and important. And I think that really um, leads to that generosity and that um, that that concept of a rising tide lives all lifts all boats is you know not just um, not we want Kalispell to be successful and we will also want you know the the community of Cusick and the you know the region to be successful because we're all gonna, that's going to make us all better yeah I really like that um, I really like that phrase I'm gonna have to log that one away for uh, another day. <laughs> um, and the community forestry or forest model is something that I think is just so cool. And it, it touches on something that I feel like I've been hearing a lot more lately, which is um, around the idea of restoration. You know, a lot of what we're doing right now is in, in forestry is trying to restore based on you know, degradation from a number of different things. And I'm really curious to hear your guys' take, um, you know, from the perspective of the Kalispell tribe on on restoration and the importance of incorporating humans in that process. Uh, there's a term that I've heard recently called biocultural restoration that that basically speaks to that. The idea that we we can't think of restoration simply as going back to a time and place when, you know, the nature just lived on its own and was perfect and, and humans somehow weren't involved, which is a totally uh, ignorant narrative, right? We're learning, you know, we're finally kind of flipping the script there and, and, and uh, talking about how humans have managed, uh, specifically tribes have managed the forest for millennia. Um, so I'm really curious how restoration fits into everything that you're doing. It's really everything we do um so uh but we have you know we're not <laughs> so we're we're not activists um we're advocates and through that philosophical underpinning of the tribe being that generous space being the viewing themselves as part of a community as as opposed to an isolate um from the community, right? Um, restoration is important and we look at it as, as use all the tools necessary to get the conservation outcomes that we want. Um, that means that, you know, we use the saw as a restorative tool. That means we use, you know, a hoedad to plant trees as a restorative tool or a, you know, tracked excavator as a restorative, uh, restorative tool. So it's really kind of having a good description of what the landscape needs, um, having the data to support that. 
and then um, interjecting uh, from a science perspective the smart ways to restore landscapes and you know habitat types those kinds of things opportunities and when you talk about restore one of the biggest things we're trying to restore is access right access for our tribal membership to use those resources and it's different on the different flavors of lands that are out there and accessible to the to the tribal membership so I know that your guys' organization or your tribe has slowly acquired land over time. What has been one of the major factors that you've seen degraded that you've had to work uh, in terms of conserving or restoring as you've bought these parcels of land? That That's a tough question because it's. I think it's not so much that there's things that are missing as much as the opportunity of access is relatively small right now. And so finding those places that can support those, those resources that are important, um, whether they be food, medicinal, structural um, kinds of things. So uh, it's really going back, like our, stra- our strategy for say land acquisition is um, trying to buy parcels of land or acquire parcels of land that prov- that have the potential to provide um, a resource. So let's just take a really basic one for the Kalispell people. And that's, that's camas. You know, camas is kind of one of those principal starch staples that grows in wetlands and uh, floodplain areas and exists today, much like it did, um, you know, pre-contact. But land use changes uh, through, um, you know, Western, you know, transition to Western culture has, you know, changed the soil compaction or the, you know, the hydrologic regime of that particular piece of land and has made it less um, conducive to camas growth. So we know that. So we can focus on that particular piece of land and try to restore some of that um, project or property specific hydrology or soil decompaction or wetland restoration to support um, a more abundant camas crop than existed before. And um, we as, as a European society have a tendency to want to change everything to what we think it should be as opposed to trying to embrace what it is and what it provides currently. Um, You know, we don't have, you know, house sparrows and starlings because um, we didn't bring them with us. (laughs) We brought them with us because they reminded us of home and that's what we wanted. It didn't, we didn't bring them because they were some benefit to the, to the ecosystems that we were newly occupying. So um, that imperialistic sort of um, revolutionary sort of perspective of a European settlement settler type perspective is, is, you know, we can grow corn here. Well, corn's not native to the Padre Valley or we can grow wheat here. Um, we had canvas. 
Now uh, that was a, the that was really the principal starch uh, available to the tribes. So why grow potatoes if you already have one? Another thing we we often do is we will acquire properties that have upland components that have uh, have not seen fire in a really long time. The Kalispell were um, historically have have put fire on the ground every year on, on, you know, on places they would, they would occupy. And so um, the species that were there that were important to them were used to that fire regime. Um, And uh, so we will, we, we do as much prescribed burning as we can. Um, It's, it can be challenging depending on the the landscape and the, the seasons. (laughs) Um, We have a pretty tight windows in this, this part of the world, but um, once we get that fire back down, it, it's amazing the the restoration powers of a fire, and um, so yeah, so it's uh, it, we have prop just like the floodplains. Maybe they've been ditched and drained, and we come back and we restore the wetlands and we restore the floodplains so that we can have the camas. Um, we bring in the fire. It helps with huckleberry in certain areas. Um, you know, it it promotes species like. Um, white pine and, and ponderosa pine and lodgepole pine, um, these, these species that are more resilient and um, that are important culturally. Um, so yeah, so those, those are some of the things that we do when we acquire land. I'm glad you brought up fire because this is something I'm really curious about. I mean, I know, you know, indigenous use of fire is well recorded. I mean, it's been used for, again, millennia. And we know in the last century or more, fire exclusion has led to all kinds of problems. We don't have to explore that again. I think we did that in the first podcast. But, uh, you know, what I'm curious is, is on, you know, Kalispell lands or other tribes, you know, was what, did fire just continue to be used through that period? Did they ever stop? Was there fire exclusion as well? I'm, I'm just kind of curious what, what the history is there. Um, probably not well understood. Um, we know what the traditional knowledge, you know, perspective is for the use of fire. We know the kinds of things that the tribe used for fire. And I'm pretty sure they, um, as, as settlement was happening in the West and in this area, they probably still practiced as they did with or without a reservation or a, you know, a home, uh, you know, I guess a, traditional homeland but you know that's not to say that after a while once settlement became towns and and started to become more um sophisticated that you know people went put them out (laughs) i mean that's kind of kind of what we do put put the fire out right it's fire's bad and if fire's bad we got to put it out and so there's been a change i think in over time and that probably when numbers were um, less dense as there probably was some acceptance for the use of fire and, and, and it continued on the landscape. But then as population densities increased, especially around the reservation and where the tribal members were and were using landscape uh, tools like fire, it probably changed rapidly. Um, I'm sure people got incensed when, (laughs) folks were lighting fires in the fall to burn off the berry patches and whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Are there any written records of 
the practice of fire, maybe instructions or you're nodding your head or uh, shaking no. your head here. No. So, so, so um, no, no written piece, right? The only writing that's, that has happened from that perspective is, is happening now. Um, and probably over the last 20 to 30 years. Um, what about verbal stories? Cause I yeah. know that's kind of the, yeah. the big way. Are, can you provide an example? Do you know of any stories that were shared? Not particularly with fire. Um, but it was an oral tradition and an oral knowledge base. And so stories were one way to tell, um, you know, parables or, you know, lessons, but something like fire would be similar to a salmon chief, um, you know, assigning responsibilities and catch rates for different folks at a particular fishery. Right. So, um, not necessarily a story, but just a passed down center of knowledge. So you had these people that were in charge of something, whether they were the hunt, you know, a hunting chief or a, a gathering person or, you know, a, a chief or a salmon chief, those folks, basically were the ones that everybody looked to to pass that knowledge onto the younger folks and to kind of be that center of, of knowledge. And that was just passed down from elder to the next person in line. Um, so not necessarily a story driven process of learning and that those particular instances, I'm sure that was just, I was a living manual and I passed my knowledge down to the next person. Um, as a matter of, of everyday sort of transition. That that's really fascinating. I mean, it sounds like you're saying that it was just so ingrained that it basically wasn't, it wasn't worth telling, not worth telling a story about it, but it was just part of life kind of just didn't, didn't make the headlines because it was so ingrained in what, what they did, which is really interesting. Right. They, you know, things like creation story and origin story and, and, how salmon were, you know, made unavailable to the Kalispell people past a certain point. Those are all sort of parable, uh, you know, uh, mythology, right? That was their, that's the kind of stuff of story. But then there was just that other set of knowledge base that was just recounted every year and passed on from generation to generation so that those pieces wouldn't go with no written language. Um, that, that's how they, you know, that's just how they had to do it. I think to let, to let me take this on a philosophical rift, you know, it's interesting nowadays where we're in this era of social media, era of technology, everything can be recorded, everything can be written down. And we, we don't quite have that same level of reverence or respect or need for elders to have that share of knowledge and share of transfer through the community, not to say we don't need it, you know, in, in general, but it's interesting looking at, you know, Native American, um, you know, that culture, because they, they really like community was so essential for them, it seems like, and not just community within their own, but also between different uh, tribes, because there was quite the share of resources and knowledge that transferred between them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, if you don't have, if you have an abundance of camas and you don't have regular access to a large salmon fishery, um, 
yeah, you have to interact with your neighbors to avail of all the various resources that you need to, you know, subsist through time. So the, the Kalispell, for anybody who's not from the area, you guys are located in, I'm going to butcher, it's Cusick, correct? That's, that's the area of Pondere? Yeah, it's about 20 miles north of Newport, Washington. Um, okay. Kind of juxtaposed on the opposite side of the river of the towns of Cusick and Usk. So it's about, oh, I don't know, 20 miles north of the Idaho-Washington border where the Pondere River crosses and sort of starts to meander north from that point. And does the Pondere River, does that connect to the Spokane River? No, it's a second largest tributary to the Columbia River. Okay, and but it, it is a tributary, and I'm guessing it's it's after the the dam, after the um, oh, what's um, the Grand Coulee? No, um, so so if you think about the Upper Columbia, sort of uh, Chief Joseph Dam and Grand Coulee Dam um, blocked anadromous fish to the Upper Columbia, and so yeah. the. Uh, Chief Joseph Dam, I believe, is kind of down by Brewster, um, spans from the Colville Reservation across to Washington State side. Uh, Grand Coulee the same. It's located half on Colville Reservation, half on the state of Washington. Um, and then as you proceed upstream, um, you come to the Spokane River and then the Ponderay River where it dumps into the, to the Columbia in Canada. So just across the border in Canada, and then you continue, you know, up into Canada to like Micah Dam and Arrow Lakes Dams, and you kind of, you know, up to the canal flats and the headwaters. Because I know bull trout was a major fish resource that a lot of tribes uh, really needed. Is that was I'm assuming that was similar for the Kalispell? Probably more so important than salmon as a recurring resource um, just because of the distance to procure salmon. Um, the tribe had one known owned fishery, which is a Samo river in Canada. And they traveled to both Kettle Falls and Spokane Falls to those fisheries that were owned uh, by the Spokane and Colville tribes and were invited participants to those fisheries. But if you think about calorically putting away fish flesh um, as a different protein source, um, you know, a 25 pound bull trout was important. A 10 pound, eight pound cutthroat was important. Uh, Suckers, whitefish, important, very important. Can you give us this breakdown? You said that the Kalispell tribe had covered this uh, this area of 2.3 million acres across the inland northwest, which extending from Washington to Montana up into Canada. Can, can you just kind of give us this, this short little history background of the, the I guess, I'm trying to see how to phrase this question, kind of the... the distribution of the tribe i mean there's so there's this talk about like salish and i don't fully understand the, the concept of salish <laughs> because i think it's, a, it's it's more of like a, a a language i think 
Um, and, and how were the interactions maybe with the Colville, which you just kind of talked about with trading. So could you kind of give us a little bit of a story here of, of the, the history of the tribe and what were their distinctions from some of the others? Boy, you're going to, you're going to put me in a, a tough spot. <laughs> it's, um, so the Salish language family is a large family of languages yeah. and they're all very similar. So there's different dialects of Salish and you can kind of, there's some, you know, there's some downloadable maps you can get of, of indigenous languages. And you can, if, if you pay attention to how they kind of distribute across the landscape, you can kind of, you can kind of see, you know, where tribes lived and occupied. And so, um, the Kalispell language is part of the Salish group, but Salish is really kind of like a proto language to Spokane. Um, some of the, some of the different Colville band languages like lakes and uh, the Inchilean band and Espelum band, um, Moses band. So there's connection, right? So if you have the same base language, um, the words translate, right? So, Kalispell word for, uh, I'm going to try to get this right. King salmon is sumkleech or sumkli. In Spokane, it's sumkleech. So there's, you know, pronoun, you know, so there's differences, but the bro, the base word, the sort of that proto word sumkli, um, is translatable across those tribes. So they could talk to one another, even though their dialects were different. Um, Maybe not. just like talking to your relatives, you don't probably always understand them, <laughs> but, um, you know, you can get the gist of things, um, that they're talking about depending on where they're from. Mine are yeah. from Pennsylvania. So I rarely understand what they're talking about. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I, I go home and I think I've lost my Midwest accent because too many oh haters and I just don't know what they're talking about. Um, but I, I did want to know or, or, or share for the listener that there's a really interesting land map. Uh, you probably are familiar with this. It's the native-land.ca. It's a website that you can actually go and see where, you know, which tribes, which languages, what territories uh, existed in your area. Um, and it's awesome. I, I, I've really enjoyed it. It's a great way to like get the, the lay of the land, exactly what you were talking about, Sean. Um, and I'm kind of curious, Ray or Mike, is there a place where listeners could go to learn more specifically about the Kalispell? Like, you know, some of those oral traditions and, and some of the stories that you were talking about? Well, I mean, we have some information, uh, quite a bit of information on our on the Kalispell Tribes website on the KNRD portion, um, but the the stories and those those are a little more complex. I mean, some stories are only told in certain times of year, and mm -hmm. so they have some significant cultural um, components that, that that aren't shared in you know they're in very many with everybody all the time. So there's some. Um, some importance there that we try to be very respectful of. Um, but um, yeah, so there's, I, I don't think there's anywhere on our um, web platforms where we share story information. It's a, uh, it's a uh, kind of kept a little bit closer than that, but sure. uh, 
Yeah. And with our language restoration that's happening right now, um, there is some of that sort of more generic storytelling that's been translated to help teach the language. Um, and that's, that's been accessible to, you know, most of the kids that are enrolled in the early childhood programs here, um, native or not. So there, there are non-native Kalispell speakers now. Um, <laughs> right. And it, that's a really powerful story is the, the restoration of that language. And when we talked about, you know, stories and knowledge transfer, um, not being a written language and being sort of subjugated from your language during, um, you know, the twenties, thirties and forties, like they were, they were beaten for speaking their language. Um, those pieces of knowledge were lost. Um, and with them parts of the language. And so this restoration project, um, spans more than just Kalispell tribe. It includes the Spokane, it includes the Confederate Salish and Kootenai tribes as Salish speakers, um, to share all of their elder knowledge as that, that is possible to rebuild this, um, to rebuild Cal, you know, Kalispell and Salish together, um, on a broader scheme. So today's Kalispell is probably not like it was, um, pre-contact because it, you know, through time, it's just been necessary to, you know, expand that knowledge base into other, other dialects to, to try to recreate that base Salish understanding and knowledge. So, but it's a really cool, um, thing that's been going on for at least a decade or more at the Kalispell tribe and the Spokane tribe and Confederate Salish and Kootenai just working together to try to rebuild Salish. And one thing we've tried to do with the language program is, is try to insert some natural resource curriculum into the, into the immersion language program. So they teach everything in Kalispell, which is really powerful. So these kids are conversational. They're, you know, they're very fluent um, and they teach science. They teach, um, you know, biology and, and math in, you know, in Kalispell. So um, we're working on a program right now that really would provides them these, the, um, a more conservation based program that, that talks about um, invasive species um, endangered species, the habitats they depend on and, um, and really kind of, um, blend that into their daily activities in the immersion program. So we're really excited about that. That's, um, and I'm really glad you said that because I was just about to ask, you know, what kind of, in terms of knowledge transfer and, and thinking about tribal youth and what kind of efforts were underway to raise the next crop of tribal foresters and wildlife biologists and stuff that, you know, people that can go off and learn and then come back and, and manage the the lands that they grew up on. I, I imagine that could be a very difficult thing uh, to, to try to retain, you know, every, everybody deals with brain drains. And um, so I, and I imagine that's happening on the tribe as well. It is, um, you know, I have conversations with the um, executive director for WFFA a lot, uh, Elaine O'Neill Sure. about the same struggles with small forest landowners and, and passing on that generational love and knowledge um, to, to the next generation to care for that land. 
um, and they struggle with it. Um, the same as the tribe struggles with it, you know, it's 2022 and there's a lot more opportunity for tribal members today than natural resource careers or careers in, in, uh, firefighting, wildland firefighting. And those used to be the big draw. Um, when I started in the early nineties, um, that's where people wanted to work. The you, the young men, the young women wanted to, you know, work with us, uh, you know, shocking fish or putting in, you know, log weirs in the stream or beyond the 20 man wildland firefighting crew. That's not the case anymore. Um, the opportunities, the, the opportunities for education are so much more advanced now for tribal members. The world is their oyster. They have the opportunity to, to do anything they want. And, you know, unfortunately, we're just not the big sexy anymore. Um, <laughs> and it's, it, it, it's troublesome at times to think about who is that person, who are those folks that are going to step up and, and, you know, take over that leadership role or the, just that role and, and carry that, those, you know, traditional knowledge and that implementation into the future. Cause I am no spring chicken. <laughs> I'm not old yet, but I'm no spring chicken. You know, one of the things that I, I see for people that are coming into this field are um, students who engage in natural resources as a child. So maybe, you know, their family were hikers or, um, and actually where I was kind of taking this point was maybe their, their parents were hunters. And I know hunting was a huge uh, practice for many tribes do you guys actively lead youth hunting engagements on your, on your tribal grounds? So um, we do, um, we do not at this time, but we, we actually have been working with our um, summer youth program and we're going to teach a hunter ed program to all cool. of the middle school summer youth and hopefully the high school as well. Cause a lot of them get so busy with sports. And um, so, and if this is part of their summer youth curriculum, um, and we've got um, great support from our tribal council on this. So we're going to, um, we've got some of our staff, our certified hunter ed instructors. So even if they're not interested in hunting, it's just a really good baseline of firearm safety. You know, lots of homes have hunting rifles in them. And so we, we want to make sure people are safe and, 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 you know, there's a conservation component of that, you know, how the, how hunting is part of the conservation model in North America. Um, so, yeah, so, um, we're building that, uh, and this will be the first year that we we, we do that program. Um, but a lot of it is like Ray was saying: the world is, you know, they've got a lot of opportunity in this in the big world outside of the reservation, outside of conservation. But opportunities like today, we just got a, an opportunity from Washington State University. They have a new scholarship program um, for forestry for Native American students, and um, you know, so I shared that with our Camus Learning Center program. And, you know, it's not, it's a big deal. That's a lot of money. And um, I think that, um, you know, the more we can get um, those kids, we can get them hooked young. We can recruit them and retain them and keep them engaged through, you know, and then, and then get them into a program like this, that WSU offers. Um, you know, we're hopeful we can build that. It's, um, it's in process and it's very challenging, but that's our goal. Yeah, we need to do our best to make forestry the big sexy again, like Ray said. 
I never understood. I mean, it was the big sexy for me. I, I was really interested right from the beginning, but I guess there's, you know, not everybody is uh, as excited about it. I understand. And we definitely want everybody to pursue whatever, whatever they're passionate about. But it's really important, I think, that we, you know, across the board, try to instill passion for, for nature and forests because we all know that they're going to be facing more challenges than ever in the next few decades. So. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, I think when you look at technology advances and the where kids are today is that we, we are literally losing human connection to the landscape um, on a on a rapid, rapid pace where kids don't even know what the outside is anymore. Um, you know, they're, it's a virtual world of playing Minecraft or whatever, you know, Fortnite, whatever the, <laughs> the hot game is today. But um, some of these kids are just completely disenfranchised from the ecological world. And that is troubling because, I mean, I grew up in a house that was – you know, my dad was a killer. He was a hunter and he was breaking ground in the fifties that just it, you know, today seems kind of in, you know, meh, we all do it. But he was, he was part of a cadre of guys that was, you know, at the time resurrecting archery hunting as a, as a, you know, sport in Washington. And there was a handful of them. And so I, you know, I have, paper clippings of my dad, you know, hunting in the blue mountains, um, you know, basically him and his cadre and that was it. Nobody else used archery at that time. And so he was kind of part of that resurgence of that, that hunting type. Um, but it seems silly today. <laughs> he did what that we all archery hunt, not a big deal. Um, it was a big deal for him. It was a big deal for his guys. I mean, I've got stories of him hunting with Fred Bear and, and his entourage, you know, just kind of on happenstance meetups and, you know, in the Blue Mountains. It's kind of cool. You know, I, so I'm curious because right now one of the big things that I've been seeing is as we've been in this kind of technological revolution, at the same time, you're also seeing a growing component of people who are realizing that they're in this, you know, society is is right there or all the resources are right there at your whim go to walmart get your chicken and that's not really healthy and so there's been this new kind of growth of the the homesteaders the people that are kind of looking for that subsistence lifestyle and i think that that's really something that if we were to peer into the 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 history and knowledge and information of the tribes i mean that's you guys did it better than anybody else uh, and so hopefully, I, I think that's what I kind of want to take out of this this episode today is, um, you know, what can we at, at a, as a broad society, you know, take back to our own personal lives and be able to implement? Uh, and then also, how can we give back to the tribes and be able to help them restore their communities that, you know, have been so degraded over the last 150 years? Again, a good perspective. Um, the the part that's hard to teach, like we all understand how to be outside. We all know how to camp. We all know how to make a campfire. We all know certain things. 
but I think the one thing I've taken from the Kalispell tribe in 30 years is um, a reverence and, and a deep connection to the land and what it provides. And as, as a European descendant who had a dad who liked to be outdoors, um, I understood that. And when I came here, I knew I was in the right place. My concern for and my uh, ethic and was it, it was like a matching set for the tribe. Um, and I knew that it was the right place um, because it's, it's different, right? It, it's just different. There are a lot of people that share it. That there's no doubt that there's a ton of people out there that share it, but there's a lot that don't get it. You know, they'll come and hike on a trail in uh, the city park. Um, but, you know, they, they don't really understand that deep sort of connective tissue that, that the landscape provides us. I mean, heck, there's doctors out there that are, writing prescriptions for going outside, mm -hmm. right? That's how crazy right. this world has become is that now there's a prescription based medical professional going, you need to go outside and connect with nature. <laughs> you need to pick up a pine cone, right? <laughs> and so what Mike talks about in telling that story is, is providing the landscape to do that, a space. Um, Indian Creek Community Forest is, is a space that we've created with the permission of the tribe to engage everyone in a natural resource education perspective um, and, and just connect them with it. What is fire history? What is a fire resilient tree? Why is that? Why is a ponderosa pine more fire resilient than a Granfer, right? And we can we can describe those on the landscape. We can describe those on a trail with a signage or e an interactive tour or whatever that is. And so that's been a really um, cool piece that we've been able to kind of share. And that you know I might talk about that, but it's cool. Yeah. So to let's see, how do I phrase this? Um, I feel like the Kalispell and many tribes bring this perspective that's very pragmatic and it's it's kind of opposite of the, um, man, I love wilderness areas. I utilize wilderness areas. I, I mean, there's some amazing opportunity, but in the Wilderness Act, you know, it, act, it talks about a, you know, a place where man is just a visitor and there's, and you're, and that's never really been true. And so the, the Kalispell, you know, they pragmatically utilize the landscape, they landscape, they take care of it and it takes care of you because there's so much, there's so many resources out there that you would, you, you, we may not need them today, but they are good for us. They are really good for us. And, um, back then, back in the day you needed it. That was what, if you didn't know how to use it, you were, you know, it was not going to be pretty. So, um, I like to tell that story to the kids that come from Spokane and they're just like, they, they, we do, we look at the hides and the, in the horns and we talk about, you know, animals and, and utilization of animals and animals are important. They're really important 
just because they are, but they're also important because of the hides they provide us and the meat they provide us. And like that perspective, I think is often lost um, in urban environments. They just don't think about the the practical use of trees, the practical use of all of these tools that we have that we can um, gather on the landscape. Um, and, and when we talk about Indian Creek, I try to, t- I try to weave that story in, at, you know, as best I can, depending on the group every time, because it's, um, this is not, it's, it may feel like a wild place. I mean, we have wolves and bears and cougars out there. I mean, and we're only six miles from town, but I mean, it's a highly manipulated landscape. We're out there doing pre-commercial thinning. We're doing, you know, we're, we're logging when necessary. We're restoring the stream. Um, and so we're putting a lot of inputs. It's only there because we want it to be there because we bought it to conserve it and improve it. Um, and that's the same thing with the, you know, with the rest of our public lands. If we don't, if we don't appreciate them and we don't understand that the investment they are, they may not be there. So I think the Kalispell understand that better than, than most. And that's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah. I, I really feel like you hit, hit the, the nail on the head because I, it's just so important that we start reframing it, that we're not just visitors to nature. Like you said, I love wilderness areas too, but I think that narrative that, you know, this idea that there, you can just go to somewhere where man has never been and they're just going to, it's just going to be some virgin forest, you know, totally untainted. That just doesn't exist. And we have to start framing it that we're a part of this and that that's okay too, right? We have an impact and we can control our impact and we can do things in a sustainable way and we can manipulate a forest to produce the things that are valuable to the community. That's, that's so important. And I also think it's important for engagement because I think if you're bringing someone from the city like kids or something that that don't know much about this if they're just passing through like they're looking in a museum just observing instead of participating i don't think that's going to engage them it's just really not you know i was i grew up i was very fortunate i I grew up in the suburbs not in the woods or anything but there was a 20 acre woodlot uh nearby that i now know i was trespassing on but uh, <laughs> I would go out there, I would make maps, I would dig holes, I would turn over logs. Um, lucky I never got caught, but it's the reason I think, you know, I'm in forestry. And we need to give those opportunities to the, to the kids today because, you know, 80, what, 80% of people live in urban areas now. It's, that number is only growing. And that's why I think this community forest that you're talking about is such a cool model. Um, and I'm really glad. I mean, it sounds like it's successful, right? It's been a pretty good success so far. Yeah, except for COVID. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, our trajectory with the Indian Creek Community Forest and the outreach and then and kind of the participation was was starting to take off, and then you know nobody can go see each other anymore, and we're all relegated to a TD two D world. it didn't help. <laughs> so, yeah. so we're almost restarting with the, the community forest as we come out of this pandemic and kind of transition to more of a normal ish world. Um, but I think I want to reflect back on what you said about wilderness. That's, that's never been the case, right? When yeah. people, you know, when people think about, you know, when we, when we fantasize about, you know, we, we, wilderness and you know 
oh, I'm going to walk in a space that's never been walked before, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to see something that nobody's ever seen before. That that's hooey. That's just <laughs> literal hooey. There's no, there's no such thing. And man has been an integral part of nature since, you know, day one. And as populations grow um, and our, you know, insults to nature grow with it, um, that's where I think, you know, working for a tribe, working in natural resources is really kind of cool because we get to try to stave off um, all of that pressure uh, to try to continue to provide a legacy that future generations can enjoy. And we're right, I think, at a, uh, you know, a point in time at a precipice moment, right, that we have opportunities and tons of them. There's money, there's time, there's, there's care. Um, but if enough people in enough places don't act together to um, or collaborate to move the needles and to, you know, protect the land or to restore the land or to conserve the land and the species that are supported by it. We have, we have a serious, serious, you know, start to a roller coaster ride. That's, you know, epic, not good. You know, I had a, a, a person that I worked briefly with, uh, his name was Doug McKay. He was one of the foresters down in the, the South Oregon, Southern Oregon, Lake County, the Fremont Wynema area. And that was during my master's. And we were looking at diameter distribution of historic tree structure in these frequent pine, frequent fire ecosystems. And I was talking with Doug one day, you know, about how the ecosystem would have come to this shape and, and should we be managing it towards that shape? And, and one thing I learned about Doug, or one thing he told me was Doug was not a forester. His background was actually in anthropology. Uh, and so he had a, a history of looking at human societies and particularly Native American societies. And he, so he, he turned me on to the fact that at the time, I mean, estimates ranged anywhere between Two, 2 million Native Americans, upwards of some of the high-end estimates of 18, 20, 25, even higher estimates, a uh, million uh, Native American people on the landscape at that time frame. And so if you look at like how many people that, that was and how much they utilized the landscape, I mean, there was a massive influence on what our Native ecosystems would have looked like. And I, so, and I had another mentor, actually, his name's Mark Swanson at Washington State University. And he was the one actually first taught me how to hunt. And, and I wasn't really sure at the time how to, why I was getting into hunting. It was just kind of like, oh, that's cool. Um, and, and so we, we were talking and, and to, he, he kind of turned me on to this philosophy that when you hunt, what you're doing is, is you're creating a narrative to your food. That instead of being disconnected from the, the, the necessary resource that you have, you start to understand the amount of energy that goes into producing that, that necessary item, that necessary resource. And I think that thing that, that's so interesting because we're really good at taking resources, but we're not as good about taking the effort to maintain those resources and putting that, that same amount of energy back into the landscape. So I'm curious, I actually want to like turn this into a question then for Mike, especially 
what are you guys doing on your landscape? Are you guys actively managing for any wildlife species? Are you guys doing any uh, population studies? Are there any cool projects like that? Because um, I know know that was a it's a common thing. Yeah, I'll hit on a few, and Ray is really knowledgeable on on a lot of the studies that we're doing as well. Um, the um, you know we are really focusing. We focus a lot on native fish recovery, which is important um, with those bull trout, West Slope cutthroat, um, the mountain whitefish, and suckers. They were all super important, and so we that those riparian landscapes are. Um, you know, we do a lot of work in those areas. Um, we, we to restore the floodplain connectivity um, that has a you know a huge benefit for native amphibians. Um, we're doing some work on um, invasive species control through bullfrog eradicate uh, control mostly. I mean, there there's a lot of bullfrogs on the landscape, <laughs> and they they are hard on native amphibians. So we're doing a lot of work for that. We we're engaged on a lot of different efforts, um, you know, uh, on the wildlife side, and I'll let Ray talk about that as well. Um, but yeah, there's um, you know we we have a pretty we we're small, but we, we have a lot of capacity. We're a pretty big crew. Um, we have over 40, um, you know, 40 to 50 seasonal employees. And, um, the, a lot of those, and we have techs that are doing, um, stream work and, and wildlife work as well. Do you want to talk about some of the wildlife stuff we're doing, Ray? Yeah. To answer your question, we don't do a lot of species specific studies. Um, we do some monitoring. Uh, we have sort of a a large rotational monitoring program. So we do some things like um, uh, long-term trend analysis with uh, amphibian populations and neotropical migratory bird populations. We don't get, we haven't gotten into like ungulate. It's a different beast. Right? <laughs> so when you're, we have tons of fishery programs that, you know, inventory lakes and inventory species and rivers and that kind of thing constantly. Well, fish don't generally get out of the water and walk around, but deer don't stay in Washington and certainly don't stay on the Kalispell Indian reservation very long. So they're moving all the time. And so developing and designing population studies for, you know, these large generalist, uh, predators, et cetera, is really difficult. Um, it, it, but technology is changing all the time. So, you know, there's, there's new tools available to us through genetics that you can do mark recapture studies on large ungulate populations. You couldn't do before we have FLIR, you know, forward looking infrared where you can get up in a plane and just count animals on a transect because you can see their heat signatures and well enough in some cases to speciate, um, so, so as those tools grow, I think that the opportunity to do more of that kind of work is going to happen for the tribe, but currently no, um, but we're going to have to lean on our partners uh, to help with that because we're not going to be successful on our own. It's going to take DFW, Fish and Wildlife Service tribes working together just because there's just too much of a limited set of resources and human capacity to pull all that off alone. Um, so I, if I have $2 million to spend, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to spend it all on a deer study, but I might co fund something with the department of fish and wildlife or Idaho fishing game to do a broader look into that, um, and help cost share that. But I, there's just so many priorities, um, you know, it's difficult to do that then. And just 
you know, furry creators that run around on the landscape just are hard to tackle. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, let's do a porcupine study. Um, okay. <laughs> They're tough to find to begin with. <laughs> yeah. So given that many of our listeners are small forest landowners, what does, what are your, um, your forest management actions translate to in terms of kind of managing and, and maintaining your wildlife species? So the, you know, I, I equate the Kalispell tribe to a, a small forest landowner, right? Our, our landscape is not large enough for us to be considered like a industrial scale forest manager. So we're really, I think in that same wheelhouse, because we have some of the same responsibilities, we have a responsibility to a community, but we also have a responsibility to individual tribal members that own land that is in trust. And there's a fiduciary responsibility to them for the resources that occur on their land that are worth money. So trees are worth money. And, and so there's a whole process for entering a, you know, an allottee's piece of land as opposed to a tribal tract of land. Um, and we manage them very differently. Uh, we manage individual Indian lands um, more for profit than for habitat. But we do have some forest practices, basically, that, that you know, we don't go below. So that there's always a component of the different resource values um, that the stand provides. And then on the reservation or tribally owned pieces, we um, basically just focus on um, forest health, species composition, um, large diameter trees, and wildlife habitat. Um, we have several fee title parcels that are conservation parcels and we manage specifically for habitat. What's the kind of general breakdown between tribally owned and privately owned on the reservation? So the reservation is all in trust. So basically all right. owned by the United States government on behalf of the Kalispell Indian community. And inside that reservation, about 50% belongs to the tribe and about 50% belong to individual uh, tribal members or other uh, okay. native people. So it's a mixed bag. Um, and it's not, you know, it it's checkerboarded just like a state owned, you know, you got private industrial land, small forest landowners, forest service, right. county. It's, it's just as complicated but um kind of fun because the values and resource engagement pieces that we use to go in is are, are a little different than say you know a traditional washington state forest practice application yeah, that's that's funny because it i mean yeah that like checkerboarding can be obviously it's a huge challenge right and it can lead to things like fragmentation and and stuff but it also can be an opportunity um to have just a diverse like a great, great horizontal diversity or landscape level diversity. That's one of the things that I think small forest owners in general bring to the table that, you know, industrial timber companies don't, don't. It's just that diversity of goals leads to a diverse set of forests. Um, so, you know, challenge and an opportunity. But I'm curious, you said that the, the individually owned parcels tend to be managed more commercially. Is that on behalf of the individual, that's kind of their, their behest? That's, that just tends to be more their goals. Yeah. Um, in Indian country, you know, everything that has a value is, is kind of 
managed very differently, especially mm-hmm. since the Cobell case and the huge amount of mismanagement of Indian funds, uh, individual Indian money that was uh, mismanaged by the Bureau. So, you know, there's a whole new department in the Bureau, you know, the Office of Special Trust. There's So there's all these rules. Well, you know, trees, a gas lease, an oil lease, a grazing lease, they all have a value to the people that own that particular allotment. So, you know, these things are checkerboarded, but when we, you know, when we go in to treat a stand, we treat the stand and it might be right. partly on a, on an allotment and it might be partly on a tribal tract. And so the, the end result of that stand dynamic when it's done, is going to be different across that line, but we're really starting that treatment based on a need, right? Whether it's a disease need, forest health need, hazard sure. fuel reduction need. It's huh, interesting. You, you were saying earlier that the the tribe reminds you a, a lot of small forest land ownership or small forest land ownership reminds you a lot of tribal ownership. I'm curious because you guys were talking earlier about um, prescribed fire. And that's something that I know many landowners are interested in applying on their land. However, there are a lot of challenges there. So can you talk to us a little bit about some of the challenges that the tribe has in terms of applying prescribed fire on your land and also just on the small parcels of your land? I think it's the same challenge that the small forest landowner community faces and the state or the feds. Um, there's a, you know, there's a certain amount of risk um, associated with prescribed burning. Um, if your fire doesn't do what you planned it to do, then, you know, there's a risk associated with that. So having qualified um, staff, on hand equipment on hand to be able to mitigate that potential risk is important. And what I guess everybody's learning now that the state has geared up with their new, um, you know, budget provisos that came out of the last legislature um, with the 1168, the forest health initiative and the fire initiatives that uh, they've been able to, to get funded through DNR. Now there's money to do some of this, but guess what? There's, there's not the capacity. And so we're mm-hmm. kind of behind the curve, um, in building that qualification and capacity to provide that service, both on the reservation and then, you know, sort of community wide through DNR or forest service, etc. So, you know, there's only so many qualified burn bosses out there. And how do we get more? Well, we have to add the classes. Well, there's only four slots and there's 18 federal and state employees that need those four spots. And so um, we need to up the capacity of the training system to get the qualifications in place. So networking with um, our local DNR to, to, to get trainings available and, and get our folks, you know, slots in those training uh, opportunities partnerships through like the Washington resource council and the Trex system. So that, that training, uh, fire training shared exercise that's going on. Um, those have been huge, huge benefits to the tribe because we're trying to replace a piece of capacity that retired and we've been having, you know, then COVID on top of that, it's been really difficult to get the right classes, get our people trained, have enough people on the ground to meet the the mitigation standard for for prescribed burn 
add on top of that, this is the Pacific Northwest and weather plays. And our windows are generally, you know, three to six weeks, depending on weather in both the spring and the fall. So you have different objectives for a spring burn than you do a fall burn. And so um, if winter or fall comes early, it just shuts you down. If it's too dry and hot too long, you can't, you can't burn. So there's, you know, statewide burn bans. So there's a lot of complexity with pulling off prescribed burns. And that's even more complicated for a small forest landowner that doesn't have the resources. They can't, you know, they can't afford to hire a burn boss and a 20 person crew and two engines to, to burn their 20 acres or their 10 acres. Um, and I think that, that, um, Commissioner Franz's vision was that DNR would be able to have that capacity and and support that opportunity at some level. Um, but you know they're up against the wall too, and and trying to raise you know raise the bar internally with the amount of capacity they need to to take care of their own lands, let alone other other landowners. So. So, Mike, are you going to get out there with a drip torch now? You know, um, no, probably not, but I do provide support. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm red carded. Um, I'm, I'm more of a, you know, w- whatever they tell me to do, um, fill in the gaps. But uh, the challenge, we, we have a burn that we want to do on Indian Creek this spring. And uh, we've been planning it for two years. And, you know, it's it's like just all the reasons that Ray said, it's been really challenging to get it off the ground, but I think we're there and we want to have that demonstration burn out there so that people can understand, you know, and we can tell that story about how important prescribed fire is and, um, and make the habitat better. And, but it's part of a, that, that piece of that's going to be burned is part of a bigger effort to have a demonstration forest that we can have small forest landowners come out and, walk around an interpretive trail that that shows them different techniques of uh, reducing fuels on the land. So um, that's a really exciting project that we're working with the WTA on. Um, DNR, Andy from WSU has offered to help too. So, um, you know, it takes a village to make these kind of big projects happen. And we want everybody to be engaged because we want you guys to use it. We want, um, you know, we want to have uh, workshops out there and have people come out there and, and walk it informally and just, you know, learn on their own. But uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a pretty great uh, demonstration for us when it's done. So to go ahead and kind of wrap up today's conversation, since we're talking about some examples that you guys are doing, you guys just recently took a contract, correct, with the U.S. Forest Service to manage like a 40,000 acre parcel. Is that, am I saying that right? Well, kind of. <laughs> kind of. So Perfect. You're here to tell so, me that's right. So through the, for, the uh, Tribal Forest Protection Act, which was passed in, back in 2004, um, it was an authority that the feds gave tribes to partner with, you know, and, and basically offer a project to the Forest Service that they would take on. In the past, the TFPA process has been implemented by tribes by taking completed Forest Service planning documents and then going and doing the sale or doing the stewardship work or whatever that was. We took a very different approach. We drew a big boundary across the 
bunch of watersheds uh, that surround the reservation and tribal property to create a community-oriented view of management of our landscape. And so while our Tribal Forest Protection Act only applies to the 40,000 acres of Forest Service land within that big blob, it encompasses over 90,000 acres of you know private timber lands, small forest landowners, um, DNR, and the reservation itself. And it was that all hands, all lands approach concept to drawing that line. That came about from a single question from our tribal leadership after the 2015 tower fire. And that was, are we doing enough with our neighbors to protect the reservation and our residents? And the answer was no, but we had a tool. <laughs> and so that spawned that Tribal Forest Protection Act project um, submission to the region and ultimately took on um, that, that 40,000 acre forest service project. Um, and we decided to involve the Washington Department of Natural Resources, GNA government, you know, the, the GNA crew, uh, there, I guess they call themselves the federal lands division in DNR. So the good neighbor authority, um, is just another tool. So we thought if we have the Forest Service, the tribe, and the DNR working together, we can probably treat the landscape more holistically than if it was just the Forest Service alone or just the tribe alone or just the DNR alone. Because the Forest Service struggles most significantly with sales when they don't have access. And they don't really like to take on temporary access to get into a unit. They want permanent long-term access. Well, through GNA, the state can just take that sale and do it under a road use permit and get the sale done, treat the stands and then come out. And I think, you know, we just recognize that we would lose a lot of potential treatment indicated as necessary by the science if we didn't have a broad sort of all-encompassing partnership in that project. So we've completed the NEPA and we've completed the first three areas for sale units and the first sale will go to bid this, this spring. So is the focus primarily around fire mitigation? Is, or are there areas of that that you've identified as potentially cultural or spiritual sites that you have other objectives for? Uh, the main emphasis was uh, forest health and, you know, sort of that fire resiliency forest health. So looking at our stands and, and what they need uh, to be more resilient to both fire and to, you know, uh, provide the, the resources that are, that are necessary out there. So um, it, it really was a deep dive into the data and the science and trying to come up with a project that took into account everything from cultural resources to, uh, you know, uh, low elevation winter range and everything in between. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a big bite. Um, I probably burnt up some human beings and our relationships in the process, 
<laughs> but we got through it and I think we did a really, really good job and I'm looking forward to uh, the implementation and, and how our vision um, kind of comes out on the ground where we react to today's information as much as we did the information when we developed the plan. I'd like to add, I think we, the, the relationships also were improved in some cases, I think on, with our partners, like coming to the table and being like, we're not just here to tell you what to do. We're going to roll up our sleeves and do it with you. And then taking all that to the community in a very deliberate, um, you know, way on the front end before the NEPA was even started and getting input from our, from our community um, on things like that they really care about, like recreation, like, you know, ATV access, like um, finishing this loop trail over here or this boat launch that sucks. So we, we were able to, I think, gain some, some big wins in our conservation community and just our community by stepping up and um, really, you know, getting out there and doing it. So um, without Ray's leadership though, I mean, it wouldn't have happened. It's a, it was a huge lift. And, uh, and a lot of people along the way were wondering why are we doing this? And, uh, <laughs> but uh, we got there and uh, I'm thankful we did. I'm thankful we did. Well, I'm very excited to see how it turns out. We are pretty much wrapping things up here. We're at the end of the day. So I just want to say thank you to uh, Mike and Ray for coming out and talking to us a little bit about what's going on with their tribe and, and you know some of the information that they can pass down to, to our listeners. Um, so thank you very much for coming out today. Uh, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining in and enjoy the rest of your day.